The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. Fact and fiction can be very strange, bedfellows. Fiction doesn't always get its facts straight. And facts don't always leave fiction much room to grow without fabrication. But when they complement each other, they can actually tell a pretty captivating story. The Outlander book and television series often finds that sweet spot, weaving together a fictional story with a factual movement that forever changed the state of North Carolina. In the series, Jamie and Claire Frazier represent a real migration of Scottish Highlanders who found a fresh start, one of both opportunity and strife, in North Carolina in the 1700s. The mass exodus of these communities off their ancestral lands in Scotland and across the ocean established a new world for these clans, allowing them to put down roots that still bear fruit today. Across North Carolina, a rich lineage of Scottish heritage is thriving, calling upon the names of its many ancestors to share their history, their sacrifices, and their culture, generations after they first made this land their home. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents we're exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. Together, the Frasers land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. This week on the show, 
We're jumping headfirst into the future to discuss the present-day culture of Scottish heritage in North Carolina. In the Outlander television series, audiences have watched as Claire and Jamie built Fraser's Ridge, a community in the western mountains of the state filled with people from his homeland. This community is the realization of what Highlanders hoped was on the other end of their journey from Scotland, a home on which they could put down roots. It hasn't been without conflict, as more recent episodes of the show have explored, but it is the kind of community that persists, as the real ones just like it have for the past two centuries. In Gabaldon's story, viewers got a sneak peek into the modern-day Scottish culture when Claire and Jamie's daughter Brianna and her future husband Roger visit the Highland Games in North Carolina's mountains in the 1960s. Today, across North Carolina and the country, Scottish societies just like those seen on screen continue that brotherhood of community and clansmanship through the descendants of their families. But what is it like to trace your heritage and your ancestors to a moment of uncertainty in history for thousands of people removed from their own land? And how do you keep the culture of Scotland alive and visible in a place so far from where that story began? Those are the questions we're going to answer today on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, Episode 8, Scottish Forever. To talk about the current culture of Scottish heritage in the Cape Fear and in North Carolina, I'm joined today by Bob McLeod, a board member and former co-president of the Scottish Society of Wilmington. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure being here. Thank you. I know that we're going to talk about this current culture of Scottish heritage, as I just mentioned, but I want to first give you a chance to tell our listeners a little bit of background about yourself. So uh, do you mind sharing a little bit of your own family's history and, you know, its origins and your lineage in Scotland? Oh, no, not, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, my ancestors left Scotland and for the same reason in the same time as the uh, immigrants that came up to Cape Fear in the 1700s. The only difference is it took me 200 years to get here. <laughs> so what, what happened at that time, the Highland clearances were taking place. And what that was, was pure economics. After the Battle of Culloden, the clan chiefs that aligned themselves with the uh, Jacobites forfeited their land. It was now owned by wealthy Englishmen. Also at the same time, in Europe, there was a large demand for wool. It was becoming more fashionable. And it was decided that it would be more economically beneficial to graze sheep on the rugged highlands than try to farm. And the farmers, known as crofters, never owned their own property. They leased from the chief or the laird or the landowner. So with this change from collecting rents from these farmers on this very poor agricultural land to grazing sheep, it was decided, well, these people had to go. 
and there was no sympathy really in England after the Battle of Culloden. They decided, let's get rid of these people, and they had to go somewhere. A lot of them from the Isle of Skye, where my, my family is from, and Argyle, uh, these people were some of the first to be cleared. And uh, they went various places in the British Empire. Some went to uh, Canada through Nova Scotia, which of course is Latin for New Scotland. Those that came to the American colonies, a large percentage of them came right here to the Cape Fear. And still others ended up going to Australia and as far away as New Zealand. My ancestor stayed in Scotland, but was removed from Skye and settled in a fishing town up on the northern coast, a little town called Loch Inver. My great-grandfather was born there in 1822, and in 1825, he decided to immigrate to Canada. He uh, married my great-grandmother, who had been cleared from Argyle, and they settled on the shore of uh, Lake Huron. And my grandfather was uh, one of seven sons, six of whom became sailors. Of course, the Scots were always a sailing nation anyway. They're, they're a peninsula, basically. So my grandfather became a, a captain and uh, sailed one of the largest ships on the Great Lakes. Uh, he settled on the southern shore of Lake Erie, where my parents were born. And after World War II, my parents decided to move down here, uh, where I was born. So it was 200 years later, I arrived at the same place. So that's that's pretty much my family history and how I got here. And I love that because one thing I wanted to do with this episode and talking with you is show that, you know, the time period we're talking about, whether it's the real history that we've been expounding upon on the show or the Outlander TV series and its own story, it was all part of a real movement, a real migration from Scotland, and it still has roots here today. You are indicative of this, and all the people here locally and in North Carolina who trace their roots to very similar stories like yours. And so that's why I'm excited to, to do this episode. And, and I'm curious, when did you start looking into your Scottish heritage, or is it something that's always been shared in your family? No, not really. Uh, I didn't really look into my Scottish roots until about 20-some years ago. I went to a, a Highland game, and I found a Clan McLeod tent there, and I thought, wow, let's see what this is all about, and uh, got to meet the people, found out a lot about where our people came from over there, became very interested, uh, joined the society, and uh, since then, I have been to Scotland three times. I knew only the towns where my great-grandmother and great-grandfather were born. And so I've traveled to both of those. I've been unable to find any blood relatives there, but I've met some very wonderful people and have just gotten to, to really love Scotland. And I encourage people to participate in some of the DNA studies, and there's more and more people submitting theirs all the time. So I'm sure eventually I will meet some uh, blood relatives, if you will, over there. But looking forward to that. It's an ongoing process, really. It's a journey with no end. What does being part of a clan today mean? I know it's it's really a name and, and you identify with this name, but do you have other people that are part of Clan McLeod who identify with that that you know throughout the state? Oh, yes. I have met quite a few people because of my, uh, my clan membership. Uh, one thing that is interesting, you have your major clans, Clan McLeod, Clan McDonald, the Cameron, and so on and so forth. But these clans also have what are known as seps. 
going back uh, into ancient history, other families that would pledge their allegiance to a certain chief in return for the chief's protection. And in time of war, they're defending the chief. But if you are a, say, a McCaskill, a McCrimmon, uh, any number, Beaton is another one, those are all actually part of Clan McLeod. And I have met so many people that I otherwise wouldn't have known through that. And after a few minutes of conversation, comparing notes, it's amazing how many similarities there are. And I have really made some very, very good friends through, through the clan society. And, and anybody that, uh, that has that, uh, that background, I would suggest they do the same thing. Well, and one thing that I think people recognize, whether it's through a fictional depiction or their own research into Scottish culture, is, you know, loyalty and and clansmanship and community are very important. So whether you are attaching yourself to someone through name or just by association because you all trace your your roots to Scotland, there's a, a real sense of community, whether it is in your own town or on a larger scale. Oh, it really is. And we do have a, a, a really good, strong community here in Wilmington. It's not very large. Uh, what happened, these immigrants that came through here, either at Brunswick Town or after about 1820, when the river was deep and right into Wilmington, they would sign their uh, allegiance to the crown and then get on a flatboat and go up the river 100 miles and settle. So a lot of them passed through here. But the, uh, the people that we have here in Wilmington, we have several members uh, that do trace their uh, relatives right back in this area. And we have others that have moved in from different uh, parts of the country. We actually have at least uh, two members that were born in Scotland. So it's kind of a, a melting pot here of different Scottish uh, uh, experiences that, that we all share. So the immigration continues. People from Scotland are still coming over to Wilmington and North Carolina and the States. Really do. Really do. Is there a pride here in the Cape Fear as a member of the Scottish Society, knowing that this was such an important port and entry for Scottish Highlanders in that very crucial moment in the colonial period? Oh, my gosh, it really is. And uh, it's a chapter in North Carolina history, not only local history that really hasn't been told as it should be. Uh, the first settlers coming in here in the early 1700s, actually the first Scots, I think, arrived uh, 1730 something. But they were such a big influence on the whole state of North Carolina. And as a product of the New Hanover County Board of Education, I don't really remember hearing a lot about it. We heard about the Civil War, obviously. We heard about you know, the battleship North Carolina, things like that. But these early Scots coming in, we didn't hear much about. So that's why uh, the Outlander, that type of uh, publicity is good because it shines a spotlight. And, and we are proud of what they did and are continuing to do today. What do you think of all the attention that something like Outlander has brought the Scottish story, both in Scotland and here in North Carolina, which becomes the focal point of the Outlander story? Oh, I think it's wonderful. I think it's opened a lot of people's eyes. Uh, we have uh, gotten questions from some people who uh, say, will say, well, you know, my grandmother's uh, maiden name was Campbell, and I'm wondering, is that Scottish? And yes, it is. And find out that 
know, you need to know more. Maybe they were part of this original immigration. Uh, it's, it's really, I guess, kindled the interest of a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have given a second thought. But when they read the book and they, they see the TV program, they can relate to what their ancestor went through. And it, it really does kind of spark that curiosity. So I think it's really done a lot for this community. And obviously, uh, one of the, the benefits is going to be tourism. We're all about tourism. And here, Wilmington, Cape Fear is spotlighted. So it's really given us that not only national, but international attention that, that I think is, is very, very important. Now, have you ever uh, have you ever watched the show or read the books and been able to see how Wilmington and and you know really the the compatriots of your ancestors are being portrayed? Well, I have seen everything up to this year. I have I haven't gotten to the last series yet, but um, it is interesting how they're portrayed and um, fact and and uh, historical fiction do, does uh, diverge a little bit. Uh, when you look at the Scots coming up the Cape Fear River, uh, they settled in the coastal plain and the eastern part of the Piedmont. That was the Highland Scots. Did they go to the fictitious Fraser's Ridge? I'm sure one or two may have. But there was another group of Scots that were over there that were just important. That was the Scotch-Irish. You know, such people as Daniel Boone. You know, he was one of them. And I get questions uh, quite a bit about what are the Scotch-Irish? Are they Scotch or are they Irish? Well, the answer is they're Scotch that ended up spending a couple generations in Northern Ireland. Late 1500s, 1600s, the English established plantations in Northern Ireland and staffed it, if you will, with Southern Scotland, Scottish people with the idea of Anglicizing Ireland kind of uh, being more influential with those people. And it didn't really work out as planned. And at the same time, England was involved in these European wars. And to fund those wars, they kept raising taxes. And it got to the point these poor people could hardly make a living. So about 1710, there was a mass migration into Philadelphia. The Quakers in Pennsylvania welcomed them. The people in Boston and New York, the metropolitan areas, didn't want anything to do with these poor farmers. So they came in, went down the Shenandoah Valley, and ended up settling the western part of North Carolina. So the, the irony is you have the lowland Scots who settled the highlands of North Carolina, and the highland Scots settled the lowlands of North Carolina, if you will. But the two groups were really part of the, the fabric of, of the foundation of the state. So what I'm hearing is what you hope for people is that they take Outlander and even broaden their look and their own research into this history, because it's not just what was happening here on the ground that you might see in the books, but there's an even bigger Scottish story happening in the American colonies. Oh, there certainly is. Certainly is. I think she did a great job of research. But of course, it is it is fiction. We have to remember that. And there's a lot of other stories that haven't been told. And this is what we in part of our, our Scottish Immigration Trek program we're doing through the Memorial Society. We want these family stories. We want to make them uh, public. Uh, we envision a, a database where you can go to one of these memorials and, and take a picture of the QR symbol, and you'll have somebody talking about their ancestors back there. It makes it personal. The whole idea is we want to educate 
and shine a light on this uh, Scottish influence. That's an excellent program because oral histories are not only important for preserving things, but it gives a voice to people who have long been lost, and it lets their descendants speak for them and speak to their own experiences bridging today and the past. And so I think that's an excellent thing that you all are doing. Well, that, that's a good point. And uh, one thing I hear a lot, and my wife and I go to quite a few Highland games throughout the country and uh, representing Clan McLeod and people that come up and they say, well, I really wish I had talked to my grandfather. I wish I had talked to somebody. But when I was in my 20s and starting a family and working, I really wasn't interested in that. But as we get older, we have regrets we didn't. And in my case, my, my grandfather, Hugh McLeod, he was born in uh, 1876 and didn't die until I was in college. But yet, I never sat down and said, tell me about your parents or what do you know about your grandparents over in Scotland? A lot of regret there. So, yeah, that's why I think the oral history is so important. And I really encourage the younger people that come by especially, find your oldest relative, sit down with them, take some notes, learn something. Believe me, it'll be important later. Well, it's the histories of these people from, you know, that are our ancestors generations ago that have inspired things like Outlander. So the stories, whether they're factual or fiction, they're inspiring things years and years later. And if we don't ask the questions now, we're not going to have them later. Very true. We've been talking about the Scottish history of the colonial period in the colonies all through our previous episodes, and even all the way back to our first episode when we talked about the immigration through Brunswick Town and through Wilmington. But what is the community here in Wilmington and the Cape Fear like today? Because this was an entry point. Well, the Scottish Society of Wilmington is a very active group. Uh, we do such things as in January, a Robert Burns Supper. These are held all over the world celebrating the birth of Robert Burns. Uh, Wilmington Group has been doing it for over 25 years. and last several years before the pandemic, it was held at the uh, Country Club of Landfalls. We wear our, our formal Highland attire. Those that want to attend and don't have it, a suit's fine. But we have the uh, address to the haggis, which is really something to see. We uh, toast uh, uh, the lads and the lassies in Scotland and America and anything else we can think to toast of, which is really good to do. And uh, some bagpipes are played and, of course, Robert Burns' poems. Then in February, that's the anniversary of the Battle of Moores Creek. And the Loyalists were Scottish Highlanders, as, as you know. And this was also the last charge ever of Scottish soldiers carrying broadswords and still speaking Gaelic. Uh, so we go there and we lay a wreath at the, uh, at the memorial to, to the Loyalist. Now, about a month ago, we sponsored a bagpipe uh, festival at UNC Wilmington. Very well attended. We had over 150 people come in from the community and for a, for a wonderful presentation. And we hope to make that an annual event. And, and also, we support our Celtic brethren, the, the Irish, by marching in their, their parade. Always well, welcome to help out with a party. Uh, we, we do have two Kayleys every year, a spring and a fall. And a Kaylee is a Celtic term that means a gathering or a party. And we have these at one of the local breweries. We've got one uh, 
uh, coming up next month, as a matter of fact. We bring in a, a Celtic band out of Raleigh, and it's just an opportunity to, to meet some new people, reacquaint uh, ourselves with others, and just have some, some good discussions. And then also, uh, we have a presence at the various Highland Games. As, as you know, there's a, a game we'll be starting up again in Wilmington. We will be there. We'll have our informational tent set up. We also do that at Grandfather Mountain, Scotland County Games over in Laurenburg. It's a big game in this area. And a new uh, game just uh, started this fall in Beaufort, uh, the Crystal Coats Highland game. So we set up a booth there and talked to people about us, about their heritage, and we're a resource to tell them maybe how they can find out more about themselves. And then in the fall, we have a St. Andrew's uh, dinner. Uh, it's been held in the last several years at the uh, studios of WHQR. And of course, uh, um, St. Andrew's was the... Uh, patron saint of Scotland. So we have something going almost every every uh, month. And then we have a quarterly newsletter that we get out to our members where we talk about different events and historical facts. Our listeners are going to learn more about the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge next week in our final episode of this season. We're going to look to the future of the Outlander story, which that very much factors into. And so they're going to see really the sacrifices made by Scottish Highlanders at that battle. But can you tell our listeners just who Robert Burns is so they'll understand why you read his poems and honor him at your event? Well, he is known as the Baird of Scotland. He is probably the best known poet in the world. There are more statues of Robert Burns throughout the world than any other non-religious figure. Uh, everybody knows one of his, his best poems. They sing it at New Year's Eve, All Lang Syne. Yep. The Selkirk Grace is also well known. He was quite a man, quite a ladies' man, in fact. Uh, he was a, uh, you know, a plowman, a simple plowman, but he had the, the silver tongue, if you will, and uh, wrote quite a few books. And uh, his, he's probably the most famous poet in the world. And Scottish. And very Scottish, yes. Now, speaking of the Highland Games, the Port City Highland Games are coming back this year. Uh, you all are going to be involved. I know you just mentioned it. So, this is an incredible moment for the general public to get involved with Scottish heritage. It's not just about the organizations that frequently talk about your ancestors and your descendants, but it's a chance for the public to see displays of Scottish heritage and culture. So what can we expect from this year's Highland Games? It's going to be on May 14th. What can we expect from those who are going to be there and the Scottish Society's involvement? Well, we're involved from the aspect of running Clan Row. And what that is, we are encouraging different Scottish clans to come and represent themselves and have information for people that may be uh, part of their, their clan. Uh, what they are to expect is, uh, if you haven't been to one, you're going to be surprised and pleasantly so. Uh, it is a, an event and they are held all over the country. Here in North Carolina, one of the largest in the country is Grandfather Mountain. It starts on Thursday evening and runs through uh, Sunday. This past year, it was so popular, they had to shut down the mountain. There was no place to park anymore. Wow. Uh, I guess it was at the end of COVID, everybody was coming out. But a game like that, it lasts several days, and you have upward of 100 clans there. 
and athletics, uh, the athletes from all over come, they're professionals. Then you have Scotland County, which is in Laurenburg, not far away, as I mentioned previously, Crystal Coast. But what the Highland Games entail, you have the, the athletics in the center, which is ongoing the whole time. You have the clan tents. Uh, some of them, depending on the size, they may have uh, uh, sheepdog demonstrations. I don't think they are this year. I mean, hopefully this is the first of many years in Wilmington, and they do have a tendency to expand over, over time. But really uh, uh, fan-friendly. Uh, I tell people it's one of the few places you can go where you got a bunch of guys running around wearing skirts, carrying knives, and it's all G-rated. You know, it's just <laughs> something, you know, fun for the kids. And, and the Highland Games, the athletics themselves, are very interesting. They go back hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, this was how the clan chiefs would raise an army. There was a lot of fighting between the different clans at different times. Uh, the McLeods and the McDonalds, for example, the saying was when they weren't killing each other, they were marrying each other. You know, it was a lot of, a lot of back and forth. But how the chiefs would get the strongest people is they had competition and what did they have to compete with? Well, they get a tree. All right, who can pick up this 120-pound log, toss it, and have enough finesse to make it land in a certain way? Who can take a pitchfork and hoist a, a bale of hay over a pole? Who can take the blacksmith's hammer and let's see who can throw it the furthest? And uh, the tug of war, you know, that's a, that was a Scottish event uh, to prove teamwork. How does that work? So all of these games that we watch uh, have, a, have a historical background. And some of the athletes that you'll see, especially the bigger games, they're basically professionals. They compete for points, and every year they have the massive competitions over in Glasgow, Scotland. So they go over there to compete. So it's really, really a big thing. But it's, uh, it's just such a nice Saturday afternoon to get out with the family, uh, learn a little bit about the Scottish heritage, enjoy the athletics, uh, visit the, the vendor stand, try some Scottish food. Sometimes the vendors will be there, uh, you know, serving some haggis, if you will, or, uh, or, or brideys or other ethnic Scottish foods. So it's just a, it's, it's something for everybody. Who is the sponsor of this event? Paws for Vets, they are an excellent uh, organization. Uh, their mission is to provide uh, training and to provide uh, dog service animals to veterans, uh, most of who are suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so uh, this is one of their, their fundraisers to do it. So it is really a worthy cause. And to get tickets, uh, again, they, are on, they have a Facebook presence, and you can buy tickets in advance uh, right there. Or if it's a last-minute thing for your family, you can buy them at the gate either way. And I do tell some of the ladies that Jamie has been invited to come. So that <laughs> uh, I haven't heard back from them yet. Uh, well, you know, you never know who's going to show up. Hopefully, if Jamie Fraser shows up, I think you're going to have a lot of people there. So. Well, one thing that the Scottish Society has been working on for years, you and I talked about it uh, many years ago, actually, is a monument to commemorate this city and this region's history as an access point, an entry point for thousands of Scottish Highlanders. And I know that it's something that you all are still working on, but could you give me a little idea of how that's going and what is the uh, inspiration behind this this attempt and this effort to commemorate Scottish heritage on the waterfront? 
Well, it, it is a commemoration, but also it is meant to be educational. Uh, as I say, I think this is a chapter that needs to be told. And it was never intended to be just a simple monument. It was supposed to be and is supposed to be the beginning of the Scottish immigration trek from one end of the state to the other. The first monument was to be built along the Riverwalk in downtown Wilmington for the simple reason that after 1820, this is where the immigrants did come in, but also the exposure. The Riverwalk is extremely popular. It'd be a good place for people to see. Well, unfortunately, after working for two years with the city, the Parks Department and other uh, city organizations, a moratorium has been imposed upon any new uh, monuments on public property. So as a result, we just shifted gears quickly and thought, well, the second monument was going to be down at more at uh, Brunswick Town because Brunswick is where the first ones came in. So we've been working with Jim McKee, the site manager down there. The downside is you don't have as much exposure, but it is the right place for the first monument. And what's wonderful about that location is the area where we propose putting the monument is overlooking the actual wharfs where these ships came in in the 1700s. And if you stand there today and look out over the river, you're seeing exactly what they saw. There is no man-made structure in the background unless you squint and way off and see the top of a water tower. And that's it. But other than that, nothing has changed. So what we're proposing is a cairn, and a cairn is pile of rocks. It is a traditional marker in Scotland to mark events or places, and we would have signage around it and pointing to other places such as the Port of Wilmington, uh, Brunswick Town, Campbelltown, and uh, uh, Cross Creek, which are now Fayetteville, and up there there will be other memorials. Uh, after that is done, the next one, if Wilmington's not ready yet, will be at, at uh, Moores Creek. We are, are talking to the people there already. So it's going to be a series of them, and we're excited about it. We've been raising funds for a couple of years. We've had uh, donations from some clan societies, individuals who have relatives that came through there that would like to see some commemoration of their, their ancestor, and uh, uh, some corporate uh, donations as well as some from uh, two foundations. So we're well on our way. So it's not dead. It's just Wilmington's not ready for us yet. Well, I think that's wonderful. Again, that, that trek sounds like a great place to start for a lot of people interested in this history. As I've said multiple times in our episodes of this podcast, if you want to walk in the footsteps of Jamie and Claire, you can come to Wilmington. You can come to Brunswick Town, but if you want to walk in the footsteps of the real Scottish Highlanders who came to this area and made it their home, this state and this colony their home, Brunswick Town and Wilmington and Moores Creek, these are all real places where they walked. And so this trek and, and these monuments, which I hope that you all uh, get on the ground and, and start educating people, I hope that they are going to be a, a great start for it. As we wrap up, I'm very curious what you hope something like Outlander will do for Scottish heritage moving forward. You have a very active Scottish society here in Wilmington. Do you hope that it adds more members? Do you hope that it gets members who don't have any Scottish heritage in their family to be more active and engaged with this history? What do you hope for the future of Scottish heritage in North Carolina? Well, I think that Outlander has done a great job of focusing on North Carolina. Years ago, when Braveheart came out, 
Rob Roy, some of these other Scottish movies, there was a lot of interest. But this raises interest, but it does it at a local level. And as far as our organization, yes, we definitely would like to have more members. It just makes us richer, gives us a broader brace of experiences. And no, you don't have to be Scottish. I mean, it is part of the DNA of this area. And if you are from some other, any other ethnicity, but are interested in the history and would like to more know more about these early Scots or Scots in general, we would welcome you. And, and if people are interested in joining or being part of the Scottish Society, what should they do? Well, we have a website. It's uh, wilmingtonscots.org. And there is a, a membership form is there. Uh, we, uh, after you join, we do have monthly uh, board meetings, which right now are open to all the members. Right now we're Zooming them. Hopefully we'll go back to in-person at, at some point. But the first step would be, uh, again, going to uh, wilmingtonscots.org. And we also have a Facebook presence. Exactly. You guys are all over the area. You got all kinds of events that are happening. So there's plenty of ways to engage with the present day Scottish society here in Wilmington. Bob, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for continuing to share your family and all this Scottish history with the area and the state. And uh, I'm excited to see what you all do next. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Hunter. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Join us next week as we look to the next chapter of the Outlander story. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find the show. Be sure to also follow Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing here at the site. This podcast and all the exciting projects we do at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site, by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthouse.com slash donate and the number one. Thank you so much for supporting us. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. I'll see you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials 
tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.